Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. And on that note, I want to say thank you to Vobs, who became the newest patron of the podcasts, and to Thomas, who donated to the podcasts. As well, if you have a business, or you have an event, or you have a podcast that you want to promote on my podcast, well, I have very competitive rates, and I get several thousand downloads every single day. So, if you're interested, just email me at craig at canadaehx.com, and I can get your stuff promoted on my show. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. If you grew up in the 1990s like I did, and you were home during the summer or had a sick day, then there were certain shows you watched. There was, of course, The Price is Right, but on the CBC there was another show, and it was one that was not only fondly remembered today, but it has become part of Canadian culture. It was the Red Green Show, and in today's Nostalgia episode, I'm looking at the show that ran for nearly a generation. I will also have my interview with Red Green himself, Steve Smith, at the end of the episode. First, we need to look at the man we most identify with the show, Steve Smith. Born on December 24, 1945 in Toronto, Smith would begin his career by studying engineering at the University of Waterloo, followed by a series of jobs. In 2011, Smith would state, quote, The University of Waterloo is largely to blame for red-green, end quote. In 1979, he would begin to produce, write, and star in the show Smith & Smith, a sketch comedy series with his wife Morag, whom he had married in 1966. The show would run until 1985, and it was on that show that a proto-Red Green would first appear, satirizing home improvement, fishing, and do-it-yourself shows. In particular, it would focus on Red Fisher, who hosted a hunting and fishing show that ran on CTV from 1968 to 1989. It was on Fisher's show that Scuttlebutt Lodge would appear, and would serve as an inspiration for Possum Lodge years later. The red-green character would first appear on Smith & Smith in 1979. Well, uh, <coughs> how you doing, friends? Uh, red-green here, and God, I gotta tell you, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> now, be back here at the lodge, uh, a bunch of us just went away on a trip, uh, which is uh, <coughs> where you usually go when you go away on a, <coughs> a vacation. And what we done was uh, we went to Las Vegas. Yep, yep, we're dressed for it. And, uh, <laughs> Originally now, we were gonna go, we were gonna fly down there, you know. But, uh, geez, those Pinko airport guards, you know, they wouldn't let us take their rifles or 
the grenades and of course the tank was out of the question so <clears throat> what we done was we just uh, we fired up the old pickup you know the, uh, no i'm not referring to that girl that was here last week i mean uh, <clears throat> the old truck there uh well i guess it was in the front seat there we had uh there was me i'm sure yeah it was me and um junior singleton was there buster hatfield and uh old man sedgwick yeah he was in there and then uh, in the backs and in, in the here not the backs i said the backs there <clears throat> wasn't that over there was uh in the box it was uh, stinky peterson <laughs> he was back there i guess we had uh got two or three uh hunting uh, hunting uh, hunting uh, jackets and uh about four thousand quarts of oil smith would state quote i remember watching red fisher and thinking it never occurred to him that he might be boring you he was not intimidated by the medium of television. Red Green talks the way Red Fisher talked. End quote. Smith would add in a later interview, quote, Red Fisher, who had a real fishing show where they sat in front of a piece of paneling and pretended to be sober. I was supposed to meet him at a radio station once, but he stayed home to do his laundry. One of my heroes. End quote. In Smith & Smith, the proto Red Green was called Old Uncle Red. The mailbag segment that ended each show would also become part of the Red Green Show, as with the idea of a dual monologue, which would be adapted to the characters of Green and his nephew, Harold. The year that Smith & Smith ended, Smith created Me and Max, which he starred in with his wife, as well as their kids, Max and David. Playing fictionalized versions of themselves, the show ran for 26 episodes. In Me and Max, another proto-Red Green would appear, further refining the character. In that show, old Uncle Red was the uncle to the boys, and it helped to show that the character benefited from having a sidekick that was the opposite of Red, which would be adapted into creating the character of Harold. Me and Max was then followed by the Comedy Mill, also created by Smith and his wife. The show would also include Peter Callahan, who would go on to play Ranger Gord, but at that point, he was just starting out in acting. Once the Comedy Mill ended its run, Morag retired from performing, and Smith would launch a new series. The Red Green Show. He didn't know for sure if he was going to do another show, but thought he had another show in him. Smith would say, quote, I was going to go back to school to be a lawyer, but I thought I'd give it one more try. End quote. He may not have known it at the time, but the Red Green Show would go on to define his career, becoming a part of Canadian culture, and would run for 15 years, producing an astounding 300 episodes. Smith was approached by the management of CHCH in Hamilton asking if he would put together some low-budget show ideas for spots in the lineup. Smith would suggest his character of Old Uncle Red as he wanted to explore the character more. Smith would say in 2020, quote, I said to them, give me enough money so I can do something, but not enough so you care what it is, End quote. Smith knew that the character featured in sketches would not be able to carry a half-hour show himself so the decision was made to expand it to all men's stereotype obsessions such as speed, male bonding, and power tools. Production on the show began in January 1990, but would not air its first episode until March of 1991. In the first season, the show was noticeably different from later seasons. Usually only Red and Harold were shown at the launch, and the red-green show crest was worn by both characters in this season only. The Possum Lodge crest would debut in lodge meetings in season 2. The creation of Harold was seen as a stroke of genius by many because of Pat McKenna's chemistry with Steve Smith and the way their characters played off each other. McKenna would say in an interview in 1993, quote, Harold figures he's the only one who understands what people want to see. 
So when the old fishermen are telling their old fishing stories, he tries to squeeze in his own shows that are hip and now for the teenagers out there. We have things like Cool Hair and Harold teaching teens how to dance or instructing them on starting good gangs and having drive-by science lessons. Of course, all of this is being taught by the nerd at school, who is as out of touch as the old fisherman. End quote. Harold actually came from a character McKenna used to perform in Second City. McKenna would say, quote, The key to the character was his vulnerability, the twitch, the glasses. All that's fine, but Harold's so funny because of his determination not to be dismissed. End quote. Smith was looking for a character to work off of Red Green, and he happened to attend McKenna's act in 1989, and he would say, quote, I was looking for a strong character to work off of and felt that Pat's Harold would be perfect. He enhances Red's character by being the exact opposite. End quote. <clears throat> this is a point in the show where uh, we give Harold a chance to say what's on his mind. Now we're going to do something to kill the time. Okay. <laughs> huh? Bullies, okay? All right, well, you know who I'm talking about. Those people who beat you up on the way to school and supermarket and church. <laughs> Well, I don't think anybody has the right to use physical violence on another human being. Well, all right, unless, of course, like you're Batman or the police or something, and then it's okay. <laughs> and, and I don't mind being attacked verbally. That's okay. You know, I'm, I really am getting used to that. But I, I got a Walkman, so I don't even notice much anymore. <laughs> but when it resorts to fists, I just have to stop and say, enough. But usually that doesn't help either. <laughs> you know, okay, all right, yes. I, when I get punched by some moron, I can resort to, like, immature tactics as well. Like punch him back or something. Or I could be mature about it and crumble into a moaning heap. <laughs> and then I go home and I plot against them. Like ordering 80 pizzas to their house. <laughs> so you have to do that. You got to use your brains or otherwise you've sunk to their level. And they're going to win because they got huge ham-shaped fists. <laughs> but those hands are no match for this. Head lice. We have lots more coming up for you. Not, not just the haircutting story. Oh, thank God. <laughs> the show was technically a show within a show, with Red and his fellow Lodge members having their own television show in which they gave lessons, showed how to repair things, offered advice, and took part in outdoor activities. Summing up the show, Smith would state it was about, quote, the stupid things men do when women aren't around. It is amazing the lengths men will go for dumb things. Men can focus really well, but their aim is off, end quote. The premise of the show followed Red Green, a handyman who was the president of Possum Lodge, a fictional fraternal organization in the town of Possum Lake, itself also fictional and located in northwestern Ontario. Possum Lake was also located near the fictional community of Port Asbestos. Portrayed as a basic access show taped on a handheld camera by Red's nephew Harold, the show would evolve over time and several regular segments would be featured in each episode. The most frequent segments were the Possum Lodge Word Game, Adventures with Bill, and of course, Handyman Corner, but more on those later. Dumb jerk! You've been kicked in the head! You've arrived in Frankenstein! I am skinny and ugly and my hair is red. A shocking new vision from the creator of Scanners. I'm cutting your head! I'm cutting your head! From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett. And this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North. 
a new podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. In our first series, we'll focus on one of the most important and enduring sketch comedy troops of the last 50 years, The Kids in the Hall. We'll explore the story behind the kids and their groundbreaking show that ran for five seasons on your CBC, their creativity, triumphs, and missteps, and how the group's iconoclastic approach to sketch comedy may have hurt them in the short term, but could be the key to their enduring appeal. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is coming bi-weekly starting November 2nd. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. One thing I love about podcasts is the amazing stories that we can learn and the things that we can learn from those stories. And that brings me to King of the World, a seven-part podcast series about American life in the post-9-11 world, hosted by Shah Jahan Khan. America after 9-11, living in a post-9-11 America, phrases like these have become part of our cultural vocabulary. And, in a way, it makes sense. It was a day that changed everything, both for Americans and people around the world, including here in Canada. But for those who saw themselves as even remotely Muslim, 9-11 did more than they could possibly imagine. Whether they liked it or not, that was the day they all became part of the Muslim world or American Muslim community, for better or worse. And they didn't really get to choose what that even meant. Now, 20 years later, with the help of experts, victims, and friends, Khan is piercing together how things went so wrong for so many. King of the World is a seven-part series that follows his journey through addiction, identity, creativity, and what it means to belong as a Muslim in America in the 20 years after 9-11. It's a fascinating story, a fascinating podcast, and one you should check out. King of the World can be found wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also find a link to King of the World in my show notes. At first, the show did poorly in the ratings, but it did see its ratings improve slightly with each of its first three seasons. One issue was that the show was bouncing around the schedule, but even with this, its viewership began to grow. At the end of each season, there was an ever-present risk of cancellation, but thankfully the past success of Smith helped to keep the show going, as did things like the Hamilton billboard someone put up that said, quote, forget the whales, save red green, end quote. Unfortunately, despite all this, the show was cancelled after the third season. So why am I still talking about it, and how did it go for another 12 seasons? The show was quickly picked up by CFPL London, under an agreement with YTV. Smith had bought the rights to the show from CHCH when it was cancelled, allowing him to get his new deal. He had complete control as the owner of the show now, and he would even put commercials on Global for the show. The fourth season would begin with a name change due to the worries over legal issues. The show was now the new Red Green show, and while various regulars couldn't appear on the show during this time, new ones would soon appear. The name change would last only until the sixth season, and Smith would say in 2010, quote, We've always been different, so we started with the Red Green show, then our fourth season my producers changed it to the new Red Green show, and then after our sixth season we went our separate ways and I went back to calling it the Red Green show. So the new ones aren't new or old, they're in the middle. Told you we were odd. End quote. The return of the show to another network came down to viewers who loved it. The Red Green Fan Club, which numbered 1,000, quickly mobilized into action in a letter campaign, and its numbers soon swelled to 5,000 people. By 2002, that fan club would have 120,000 members. Smith would say in 1993, quote, I can't stress how much the viewers played a role in this. They gave me a feeling we were connecting on some level. I've completely changed my attitude to TV in the last year. End quote. He would add in a McLean's article that same year, quote, 
Letters came in on lunch bags, sandpaper, birch bark, whatever was handy. End quote. Around this same time, PBS in the United States started to broadcast the show, greatly increasing its viewer base. The show was also committed to being part of the PBS pledge drives, with characters from the show appearing in character during a pledge drive. By 1993, the show was being syndicated in Trinidad and Tobago, Korea, Taiwan, and several other markets, making the show an unlikely Canadian export. With its move into the United States, the show became the first entirely Canadian comedy series to run on U.S. primetime. Now, the, the, the humor on Red Green is, to me, a very Canadian kind of humor. And um, I don't know why I, I, I identify with I know you, have, you make references to Canada in the program, mm-hmm. but to me, it's, it's the kind of people that I grew up with or the people that I'm related to. And the show has done so well in the United States. Why is that? Is it, what is the universal aspect of it? Well, I think, first of all, this is one of the very few Canadian shows that has succeeded because it's Canadian, not in spite of it being Canadian, mm-hmm. and not pretending to be something else. And I think there's, at some level there's some lesson, and maybe someone 20 years from now will look back at that and think, that's kind of different. I think that there's an, there's an attitude that is uh, uh, Canadian, and it has to do with uh, self-determination and independence, and mm-hmm. I think that people relate to that. and They may not define it. In Houston, they don't define it as a Canadian trait, Right. But they still respond to it. I think that the Red Green Show is funny all over the States, but in Canada, it's an inside joke. Mm-hmm. It was in 1993 that the show was beginning to gain notice from critics as well. That year, the show earned its first Gemini Award nomination, now called the Canadian Screen Awards. In 1994, it not only picked up a nomination for Best Comedy Series, but also for writing, and Smith was nominated for his performance as Red Green. Over the course of its run from 1991 to 2006, the show would be nominated for 25 Gemini Awards, picking up one in 1998 for Best Performance in the Comedy Programmer Series. Smith would also receive the Order of Canada in 2006 for his contribution to Canadian culture. Finally, in the seventh season, a deal would come along that would secure the long-term survival of the show. CBC bought the rights to the show, and it would remain on that network for the rest of its run. During this time, Smith was also writing a syndicated newspaper column in the character of Red Green called North of 40, in which he gave advice to readers. Beginning in 2000, Green became the ambassador of Scotch duct tape for 3M. In 1994, a Fan Appreciation Day was held in London, Ontario, with 2,000 people showing up. Smith said he was expecting maybe 200. Even Tim Allen, who had a huge hit with Home Improvement at the time, ran into Smith at a TV industry convention and asked him, quote, should I be worried about you guys? End quote. In 1997, Michael Fole, a British astrophysicist, went into space on the space shuttle Atlantis. He would take with him, to pass the time during his four-month stay on the space station Mir, 13 hours of red-green videotapes. Smith would stay, quote, Lord only knows what the Russians will think of it. End quote. Once the show incorporated a live audience, they would bring in audience members to take part in the possum salute at the end of the episode. Smith would say, quote, At one of these sessions, there was a bank president next to a 17-year-old kid with a ring through his eyelid. End quote. By 2002, the show was playing in 100 PBS outlets in the United States, and a movie, Duct Tape Forever, would be released that same year, following Red and Harold as they tow a giant goose to a duct tape sculpture contest in Minnesota. Through the years, the show would bring in some very high-profile Canadian talent who would take part in various segments. Of all the characters, only Smith would appear in every single episode. Patrick McKenna, who played Harold, would appear in the next most, 241, 
followed by Rick Green, who portrayed Bill in Adventures with Bill, appearing in 200 episodes. Among notable guest stars, there was Gordon Pinsett, the celebrated Canadian actor who appeared in 57 episodes as Hap Shaughnessy. Oh, uh, we gotta, we gotta agree to stop killing the whales. Oh, all right, fine. All right, the next time I see a whale in Possum Lake, I'm just gonna back right off. <laughs> and I'll tell you what else, I'll, I'll speak to Bernice and get her and her friends to just ease off on the whaling activities. <laughs> Uncle Red, just because nobody you know is killing whales doesn't mean it's not happening. You can't assume things aren't happening just because lodge members don't do it. Well, I guess I'm the fella you're looking for, Harold. I was a whaler at one time. <laughs> Never a professional, not like them big Japanese ships, you know. I was, no, I was more of a sport whaler. <laughs> I went out in the canoe, you know. A 20-footer, a big one. Yeah, sounds like a big one. Mr. Shanti, how'd you get one of those big harpoon guns in a canoe? A harpoon gun? Hell, where's the sport in that? No, no, no. I just... I just wrap a rope around myself and I dive in, I grab onto his tail and I'd hang on and I'd wear him down. <laughs> you know, it, was a, it was a battle of endurance, me against the whale. It wasn't easy. Did you ever see the tails on those things? They're incredible. <laughs> well, incredible tails be right up your alley, I would say. As well, there was Academy Award-nominated actor Graham Greene, who played Edgar K.B. Montrose in 27 episodes of the show. Graham Greene came about due to a chance meeting between Greene and Smith, with Greene stating he was a fan of the show and he wanted to play a role. Coming off his Oscar nomination, it was a request Smith was more than happy to approve. Oh, I agree with this viewer. I'm telling you, my wife Bernice dragged me out to see that Mary Poppins a few years ago. Man, talk about offensive. I thought I was going to get diabetes. They started singing that super calanarcholeptic extra halitosis. I just about lost my licorice nibs. I'll tell you what's wrong with movies. They give the kids a false sense of reality. Like that movie Speed when the bus blew up. You never get that much flame. <laughs> they showed it as a big fireball, but a real bus explosion is all smoke and mirrors. I know, I was the mechanic at a bus company for a couple of days. I would like to caution of you, there have been some great movies made that are both educational and uplifting. Yeah, in the old days. Like, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Did you see that baby go up at the end? <laughs> and the train went crashing into the river? Won an Oscar for Best Picture. But that one now, uh, Bridges of Madison County. I waited for one of those bridges to go up, but not... <laughs> And I wasn't the only one disappointed. Everybody in the theater was crying by the end. <laughs> Paul Gross, another well-known Canadian actor, appeared in five episodes of the show, as did actors such as Gavin Crawford, Dave Thomas, and Colin Mockery. There were, of course, the famous segments that aired, and I won't go into all of them, but I will touch on the three most famous ones. Without a doubt, the most famous and well-known is Handyman Corner. This was a segment where Red Green would demonstrate creative and weird ways to tackle common tasks such as taking out the trash. Duct tape, which he called the handyman's secret weapon, was used heavily in these segments and became a trademark of the entire show as a result. The things made during these segments include a paddle wheeler made out of a van and pallets and a revolving door, 
a jetpack made from propane tanks, and scuba gear made from an old gas grill. At the end of every segment, Red Green would say, quote, If the women don't find you handsome, they should at least find you handy. End quote. But I'm thinking it's maybe time to take her to the next level, eh? Instead of a drive-through restaurant where you have to go to where the food is, which can be humiliating if you're, say, on foot or worse still, riding a bicycle, I suggest a drive-to restaurant where the food actually drives to where you are. And I'm not just talking about plain old delivery where all you get is soggy fries and lukewarm attitude. I mean an actual kitchen on wheels. It's a million-dollar idea that you can make out of a $40 car. Now, since we're talking takeout, we gotta start by taking out a few things, like these seats. Now, if you end up using a luxury vehicle with the heated cushions, you might think about keeping them. Make great bun warmers. Okay, now that the seats are gone, the only other thing I have to lose is the roof. If you don't count my credibility, and I'm sure you don't, Okay, I just got to get this out of the wind here. Okay. I'm not quite sure what, what happened there. I must have, must have blacked out. The roof is missing. Oh, there it is. Adventures with Bill, which Smith will relate the origin of in my interview with him at the end of the episode, was a black and white segment in the form of a narrated home movie. It was silent, but it had sound effects and music with Red Green narrating. Typically, the segment followed Bill and Red trying to accomplish a task, go on an adventure, or try out a sport, but it would quickly descend into slapstick with Bill being severely hurt in some way, but always bouncing back without an injury in the next episode. We have our uh, outdoor expert, uh, Bill, with us this week on a pole. <laughs> I'm going to teach us about, uh, I think he's just going around there. I'm going to teach us about uh, canoeing and uh, the various techniques to use for the beginning canoeer. Because you know in these days when they're casting the cost of gas and they're in the cast of gas and all that stuff is so hot. Now, this is a paddle measurement technique. You want to you want the paddle to come up to about your chin. So one's too short and one's too tall. So uh, Bill uh, comes up with a solution to that problem. Uh, maybe not, not, not the ideal solution, but a solution nonetheless. And then... That one was fine anyway, so and it worked, it all worked out. We, we have lots of paddles. And now he's going to show you how to get into a canoe. Now, I think a lot of what Bill does is he shows you, you know, the, the, uh, the wrong, <laughs> wrong way uh, to do things. Uh, I think he knew that was coming. He's okay, no problem. <laughs> and then uh, what he wants to show, now he's showing you how to get it from the side. That was the end shot, this is the side shot. But uh, here again, I don't... I, I think Bill, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure he meant to, uh, yeah, he meant to do that. Yeah, he just looked like he was panicking, that's all there. It's just all for effect, I think. The third most famous segment was the Possum Lodge word game, done in the style of Password, with the contestant trying to guess a word within 30 seconds with various clues given. In the segment, the contestant would guess things that were way off, and usually said the right word by accident. Harold would host the game typically, and when he would announce the prize, he would do so in a misleading way by saying the contestant, for example, had won a new house, roof, shingle. Okay, this is the big one. The grand prize is for a truckload of stuff we picked up at the side of the highway. <laughs> Mr. Humphrey, you have 30 seconds to get my uncle to say this. <laughs> what? 
The last episode of the show would be filmed on November 5th, 2005. In the last episode, the fourth wall was broken when the audience and fans were thanked for the continued popularity of the show. The man's prayer said the end of each episode was also changed in the last episode to say, quote, I'm a man, but I changed because I had to. Oh well. End quote. For Smith, the success of the show and its longevity came as a surprise, and he would state, quote, In 1990, this was a summer job for Rick Green and me. Everything has been a miracle. End quote. McKenna would say, quote, We started 15 years ago, and guys who watched us with their dads now have kids. End quote. So why was the show so popular? Smith states it was because it didn't focus on one demographic. He would state, quote, From bank presidents to garbage men, it's not cultural, social, or economic. It's attitudinal. If you're hesitant to call a repairman, if you'd even take a run at your microwave oven, you have red-green potential. End quote. Smith had not planned to return to the character having spent so many years with red-green, but he found that it was harder to shake the character than he thought. He would say, quote, when I finished the show, I was done, done, done. I was like, I'm not doing anything ever again, but my brain wouldn't shut off. I keep thinking of things, End quote. A special for PBS was created called The Red Green Story. We're all in this together in 2008. In 2010, Smith embarked on the Wit and Wisdom comedy tour, giving live performances as Red Green in cities across North America. Two years later, in 2012, the How to Do Everything tour was announced, touring Canada in 2013 and the United States in 2014. In 2016, the I'm Not Old, I'm Ripe tour began in March and finished in May with 25 U.S. stops. In 2019, the This Could Be It tour ran from March to October, hitting 34 U.S. cities and 29 Canadian cities. In 2020, the Possum Lodge podcast would launch and continues to run to this day, featuring the characters from the show in a radio show style. I actually subscribe to this podcast, and it's fantastic. All you have to do is go to redgreen.com, but I will also have a link to where you can become a listener of the show in my show notes. Now, I'm going to end this episode by having Red Green end things the way he always used to at the end of his show. And then we'll get straight to my interview with Steve Smith. If my wife is watching... I'll be uh, coming uh, home, but I think I'm going to stay up and read a little bit tonight, so maybe you could leave the comic section on the fridge. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you very much for tuning us in, and uh, on behalf of myself and... Uh, Arrow. And the rest of the gang up here at the lodge. Uh, until next time around, <clears throat> keep your stick on the ice. Uh, so I'll okay. get right, right, right to the first question, and I'm sure it's one you've been asked a lot. Um, how did the idea for Red Green come about? Well, my wife and I were doing a television show called Smith and Smith, and uh, I would have these little one-minute bits on it that I would just try to be funny. And there was a guy in Ontario who had a fishing show. His name was Red Fisher, Scuttlebutt Lodge, and he would uh, he would he had the attitude that nothing would bore you. Like it was it was his job to film half hour. It was your job to make it interesting. And I thought that was <laughs> really engaging. Um, so I was just kind of making fun of him, to be honest with you. That's why I picked Red as the first name. And then I thought, well, the dumbest last name has got to be Green. Um, and then away we went. I did, uh, you know, every six weeks or so, I would do like a minute of that character. But it, the character resonated right away, and we were getting fan mail on it. So I knew that I'd fluked into something. <laughs> um, that's, I always thought that the Green came from Rick Green. Uh, so that's actually really interesting to know. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing to do. <laughs> Although Rick and I had been writing together 
for years prior prior to the red green thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it difficult to get the show picked up at all, or was it kind of you, you took it to uh, to CBC and they kind of immediately liked it? Well, I, I live in Hamilton and I went to CHCH, which is where we had done Smith and Smith from. And you know, I, I tell people that my pitch to them was give me enough money that I can do something, but not enough that you care what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, was, that was back in the day when, uh, you know, as a condition of license, the television stations had to spend so much on Canadian production mm-hmm. and they just considered it a cost of doing business. I mean, the good side of that, it, it, there was a lot of apathy on their side, which was great because they kind of left me alone. Um, and, and then Possum Lodge, you mentioned Scuttlebutt Lodge. Is that kind of where that came from? Is it based heavily on that, or is it kind of based on something in your own life, you know, the lodges you maybe were around you growing up? Well, it, it got blurry. I would say from the beginning it was uh, just a Scuttlebutt Lodge was the thing I was making fun of. So I remember the first monologue I did at Red Green was just talking about how did you come up the lodge? Did you come up 12 or did you come up 11? And this inane babble. So, but then... What happened was um, once I turned it into a TV show, and particularly once we started having a live audience, the audience forced everything to be real. The Apostle Lodge had to be real, and and Red Green had to be real. It couldn't ju- couldn't just be a, a two dimensional character anymore. So that, that really the audience really helped me in that regard. Um, and then with um, with filming and everything, was it most of it scripted, or was there a lot of improv that was involved at all? It was one hundred percent scripted. Um, and was it kind of uh, was it a difficult process to write up the uh, the show at all, or was it something that really flowed well? Well, you know, we were doing something that we thought was funny, and that, like a show that we would actually watch, rather than you know somebody some outsider telling us you know this is not mainstream comedy or anything. We just did what we thought was funny, so that makes it easier. If you're doing something and you like the end result, you know you have a lot of energy for it. I find mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, were there segments that were more difficult to film than others? Like, for example, was Handyman Corner kind of uh, more of a challenge because there was more moving parts with the things you had to make? Or um, was it all very easy to kind of put together? No, the, the Handyman Corners and the adventure films were the tough part. So we would balance, we, we would probably spend 90% of our budget on those two segments. And the other 10% was just fat guys talking, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty cost cost effective (laughs) absolutely um for me my favorite character always was ranger gord but how were characters crafted uh how how did you did uh you had some well-known people uh that you know came onto the show did they come on with an idea for a character or did you kind of have something in mind for them yeah i mean it it depended on you know it was a different uh process for each actor uh for some of them like uh, peter callahan played ranger gord for example well Mm -hmm. Uh, we would just have Peter come in and talk to us about, you know, what his hobbies were. And I had known Peter anyway, but you get a sense of him. And then we would we would create a character that was an exaggeration of his real things. Like Peter's the kind of guy, if he tells you he's going to do something, he's going to do it. You know, he may lose an arm doing it, but he's going to do it. He's very loyal, very dedicated. So that, that became Ranger Gord. We just ex- exaggerated that. He's been up there 30 years without a paycheck and he takes that as a compliment you know that, <laughs> that kind of now a guy like gordon pinson he's just a great actor and mm-hmm. i wanted to have a character that would just you know shoot the ball just absolutely bare-faced lie but had 
had the weight to make it credible. <laughs> Graham Green, I was at a Gemini Awards show in Toronto and he was there. It was the year I think he was nominated for uh, Dances with Wolves. Mm-hmm. And he came over to me and he said, what do, what do I have to do to get on your show? <laughs> I said, well, I think you just did it. So <laughs> the way we went. So each one was a little different, but mainly they were, we took their natural characteristics and, and exaggerated them. Um, one thing that I found really interesting was Ranger Gord's tree or uh, uh, tower was a treehouse that you had built for your sons, uh, just kind of in the backyard, and then it obviously uh, expanded to be a set eventually. But did the show, in many ways, like that, evolve over time? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we the first season we did on a shoestring. You know, mm-hmm. we we had we were. Um, connected with a guy who had the, the contract with the police that whenever was there was an accident, uh, cars were towed to his uh, business. He had a, like a car repair business. And they would sit there in the yard waiting for the insurance adjuster and the insurance adjuster would come around. And if the damage, if the, the cost of fixing the car was more than the value of the car, they would just write it off. Well, with a K car, if the damage is over 50 bucks, it's more than the value of the car. <laughs> so <laughs> we ended up, that kind of thing that we we did that in all areas wherever we had a supply of something we would try to figure out a way to use it in the show just to, to be cost effective what was the first moment where you kind of realized that you know the show was something very popular that was resonating with canadians i was in the santa claus parade in st Catharines in about 1991 and i was driving the possum van and two floats behind me was santa claus and when I would come down the street, the crowd went nuts. And with Santa, they were kind of blasé. And he was ticked. He was really ticked because he only gets one day a year, you know. And I felt bad. <laughs> so I knew something was going on. And then when the show was canceled, um, I I started getting mail from people. And I, was, I had a post office box here in Hamilton. I'd go down to get the mail, and it was like... Uh, it's uh what's that one um miracle on 34th street where the guy <laughs> handed me a, a bundle of like a hundred letters i said okay thanks and I, I just get to the door he says oh no wait i think there's a bit more and then he'd bring out a huge box i was getting a, like a thousand letters a day and this was before we got into the states or anything and this mm-hmm. was canadians supporting the canadian show usually when a canadian show goes off the air there's a street party so i was really you know encouraged to keep it going were you surprised by how popular it became Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, still to this day, I, I, the last few years I've been doing one man show tours and a, a kid will come up to me and be like nine or 10 years old and tell, tell me what a fan he is of the show. I said, you know what? You weren't even born when I stopped doing the show and your dad probably wasn't born when I started doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know for me, it was, I think I was staying home sick one day about 1991 or 92 and, and the show came on and I was like, well, this is really good. And then I was a fan ever since. Um, with, um, obviously one of the common phrases on the show was keep your stick on the ice. It's something I've even heard YouTubers who play video games. It's how they sign off on their videos. Where did that come from? Uh, a million years ago, I was in a band and we had a roadie from Bancroft, Ontario. And that he would say that. The whole thing, I think, keep your stick on the ice, keep your legs together, and don't get deeped. I think that was the whole <laughs> poem. I just stuck with keep your stick on the ice. I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, was kind of doing the red green voice was that tough at times because you had to have kind of that very gravelly sounding voice uh, did it kind of strain on your on your uh, throat a lot no and as a matter of fact it's easier for me to do that voice but I, I, I was always heavily mic'd you know so mm. they give me a lot of gain so I'm basically whispering if I had to yell in that voice yeah I'd have a problem but <laughs> it's never been an issue and people ask me that all the time um, what about Harold how, what, how did his character come about I was down at Second City looking for somebody to use as a second banana. And uh, I knew Pat. I'd known him for years. I wasn't interested in seeing him because I knew what he did. And about, you know, there's like six or seven people in the cast. I thought maybe somebody else would jump out at me. And n nobody really did until they did a, a little skit that was the grade seven class presenting their science projects. And Pat came out and did this. Ho, 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 all that stuff. <laughs> and I just thought, that's my guy. That's my guy right there. And then um, he came in and did it like on a Friday and we did some taping. And then Rick and I just wrote all weekend for his character because we just thought we got something here where I'm he's going to be more than a second banana. So, yeah, that was a good he's been he's been a good friend and a, and a great performer all those years. And then uh, Adventures with Bill. Uh, what was the idea? How did that form? Uh, when we were putting the show together, Rick Rick Green, who I've been like I said, I've been writing with for years, came over to my house, and he brought a Super 8 projector, and he had some little two or three minute movies of when he'd gone to Europe, and he'd be walking along, and he'd do it in such a way that it looked like he caught his eye on the edge of a chateau. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but mm. that's the way it looked, and because it was Super 8, there was no sound to it, and I said, "This is we got to have this as a segment on the show." adventures with bill and uh so we sh I, I bought a a used 16 millimeter camera at a, a hairdressing salon slash antique store <laughs> and i could get these little reels of film um i think they were five minute reels or something like that anyway so we would we went out and shot an adventure with bill i had five reels of film so we used them all when i went to go to post to edit the thing it turns out two of the uh, reels were in color, but the other three were black and white. <laughs> <laughs> well, we couldn't afford to colorize the black and white one, so we made the colored ones black and white. And people say, that was so smart to do that in black and white. I, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, take credit for it. Um, oh. You had several characters who were never seen, um, obviously Bernice Green and then uh, Moose Thompson and Stinky Peterson. Was there a reason that you kind of had those characters that were just referred to uh, and never seen? Was that uh, kind of a callback to something like Norm's wife on Cheers, something who's, someone who's referred to but never seen? Yeah, well, it goes back way before that. I grew up listening to radio, and, and this is, you know, we're going to get around to talk about the podcast because mm -hmm. I feel that I, I feel I have a really strong, uh, strong imagination. And I, one of the reasons for that, I wasn't really a great reader as a kid or even now, but I listened to comedies and dramas and even variety shows on the radio. So I had to picture all of these people and, and where, where they were and everything. And I remember there was a program called Armist Brooks and I enjoyed it on the radio. And then, you know, maybe 1952, it came on television. We had a TV set. So then I could see, and I thought, well, that's not how Dexter looks, and that's a crappy-looking schoolroom set. So I very much wanted to have the radio component uh, in the Red Green Show, and, and now we're doing this podcast. It's 100% um, radio. It's not even a podcast, really. I mean, we call it that, but it's, 
it's a it's a radio show. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the, with the 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 show, um, why do you feel it has such staying power? Like you mentioned, you have kids who weren't even born when it you know it finished its run who know the show. Why, why do you feel it has such staying power with uh, with Canadians and especially even uh, Americans in in the northern states? Well, um, I, I would say the common thread that I find with people is that. Uh, the red green character reminds them of one of their own either relatives or neighbors somebody in their life mm -hmm. and not only that but it's somebody that they liked you know kind of a maybe a low-key guy nobody gives you any hassle no stress you know just they think of red green and they think of it's a, it's a pleasant they have a smile on their face and i get comments like uh one guy, he was about 20 or 22 or something, he said to me, you make me look forward to getting old. You know, I thought, well, that's <laughs> cool. And a mother said to me, uh, you tell us what we need to hear and make it funny so we'll listen. You know, you get these things. <laughs> it's really kind of neat, but I mean, I've been everywhere. I've been from Tampa to Fairbanks, and I just keep meeting the same guy. And he, he's like me. He likes to be self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want anybody to be taken care of him, and he's grateful for what he has. And then uh, with the podcast, or, uh, you know, like you said, the radio show, um, how did the idea for that come about? Uh, I think it was my son that suggested it. Uh, first of all, I'm a, per I'm a person so far, anyway, that needs a creative outlet. It's, it's really good for my well-being if I have a creative outlet. And, I mean, the last... 10 years maybe I'm doing these one-man show tours but it's great I write the one-man show and I learn everything but after the first night it's just you know repeat 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 mm -hmm. and get a little, I never get tired of the audiences but I get tired of just doing the same thing so uh the podcast gave me an outlet you know I'm writing I'm writing the whole thing Dave helps a little bit but it's 95 percent me and I really enjoy the I enjoy the experience. I like the fact that I'm doing, I'm completing the circle. I'm going all, all the way back to repay what I got out of radio mm -hmm. for the next generation. And is it, uh, is it nice to be able to work with those people that you, that you worked with on the show, uh, to, you know, to make the, to make the podcast? Absolutely. And, you know, every one of them just jumped at the chance to do it. They're not getting paid a lot of money, but it's just it's a bit of a reunion when mm -hmm. we're, and of course working with my son, uh, I really enjoy that too. So yeah, no, it's, it, it's been a great experience. And, um, uh, so it, I believe you, you kind of record it all at once in, in the summer and then it's, it's released through the year. Yeah. Dave, Dave does segments, uh, fresh every month, uh, cause we, we welcome new members and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, but the scripted stuff is all done, uh, through the summer. We, we, we're, we're, we're all in the can for, the next, uh, well, I think number 16 comes on, or maybe I just did, but we've got 24 of them. So we've got another eight or nine good to go. And by the time they're used up, I'll be back and we'll, we'll hit the road for the next 12. Does it give you more freedom doing the podcast? Because you don't have to have it visually on the screen. You can create something that's in the mind of the listeners so that you can kind of uh, expand more and, and create more of a uh, an environment at Possum Lodge. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, not only uh, easier, it's it's a much bigger scope, and I don't know where that line is where I get completely crazy, but I'm gonna I'm gonna find out. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you just, it's amazing what the sound of an explosion will create in your mind, you know, especially <laughs> if set up properly. 
And then um, I guess people can find the uh, the podcast on your on your website, and it's uh, you can subscribe through Patreon, I believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just go to redgreen.com. So the links are all there. Perfect. And it's a it's it's not sponsored. We have no sponsors, and we have no advertisers. We didn't want them. Um, we we want it to be uh, subscriber based. You can get in for a dollar a month, and you can get out anytime you want. And the thinking was, you know. Uh, if you can't afford a dollar, then you probably shouldn't be even looking at this. And if it's not worth a dollar, we shouldn't be doing that. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Red Green. If you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week, we're looking at the Hillcrest Mine Disaster. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from CBC, The Record, The Classic Red Green Page, redgreen.com, Wikipedia, The Globe and Mail, Hamilton Spectre, The Windsor Star, The Regina Leader Post, Calgary Herald, National Post, and McLean's. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.